everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey, the Executive Summary Reading Knockout. On today's episode, uh, we'll chat about some latest research on one of our favorite, at least I won't speak for you, one of my favorite areas of hacking. Uh, we'll dive into some research from Microsoft's own Threat Intelligence Center, and then we will end with why Corey only reads executive summaries. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and scroll our way in. Is Mark's favorite hacking like old school Pokemon Game Boy cartridges? That's what I would have guessed. Gotta get that missing no, man. So let's start with our first topic, uh, which has a pretty long history in the world of hacking. Uh, so you've probably heard us talk about a few times on this podcast, uh, the likes of Charlie Miller and Chris Valesic, uh, who back in, what was it, 2015? Quite Corey? a while ago now. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Uh, became instantly famous when they remotely killed a Jeep Cherokee uh, while it was being driven by a reporter. Uh, they gave... I would argue that Charlie Miller was already famous to nerds like me, but they became like, well, out of security industry famous. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they'd since given several talks at Black Hat and DEF CON about car hacking. They were like some of the founding sponsors of the Car Hacking Village at uh, DEF CON. Overall, like widely, uh, widely popular researchers and really blew up this whole area of research for cybersecurity and just hacking in general. Um, yeah, what's the, the name of the little, the villages, some of the, like, like after after their Black Hat and DEF CON talks, I mean, Black Hat, like the years after, started doing automotive hacking villages. Yeah, the car hacking often, villages, so. one of the more popular ones where there's, in years past, been like a Tesla parked there, and if you can hack it, then you get it for free. Um, they've had Jeep and Chrysler. I guess Chrysler as a whole has donated cars and equipment for people to play with. And while they're not the first, there were like so there's some UW researchers that are had already done car hacks before. I think the Bluetooth wireless sensors and tires and stuff. But I think theirs was the first big enough one that could prove like a forced accident or something. And more importantly, the connection to the internet through the entertainment system. Yep. And now since then, like car hacking really has been a very popular topic, people providing their own research. Um, and then the story for today starts back in March of this year, where researchers disclosed a proof of concept for CVE 2022-27254, which I'm sure you'll all still remember. Um, this was an issue in Honda's remote keyless system that was caused by a lack of a rolling code. Basically what that means is an attacker with a software-defined radio uh, within range of your key fob in the car could just intercept that radio communication from the key fob to the car and replay it anytime they wanted. So if they intercept the unlock door command, they could replay that and unlock the door. If they intercepted the uh, start car command, they could do that, so and so forth. Um, so Honda resolved that issue by adding what's called a rolling code system with a pseudo random number generator. Basically, each time you press the button on your key fob, it increments a counter, which is used to generate a new code. And the car maintains its own synchronized counter that increments when it receives the command. And basically, when it receives a command in, um, it'll look to see if it matches what it's expecting based off the number, and then executes the action. And if you're like me, sometimes you will start clicking that unlock button 
way before you actually get within range of your car. And each time you hit that button, it technically increments that number and attempts to send a new code because it doesn't actually know if the car received it or not. Uh, so you can see how if you hit the button while you're out of your range of your car, that number might become out of sync with the car by the time you actually get to it. And under uh, if that wasn't accounted for, you wouldn't be able to unlock your car. And so what they do to account for that is basically your car accepts a sliding window of codes, basically from what it expects to some value somewhere in the future. And if it receives one that's valid within that window, it'll accept it, execute the command, and resynchronize its counter to that number then. Uh, so that going forth, they're back in sync. So I have a feeling the sliding window might be some new avenue that you'll tell me about. But to pause real quickly here, I, I will say this this whole avenue of attack on cars is probably one of the first. You know, we've done predictions on cars before. Uh, by the way, Charlie Miller and Chris Velasek stuff wasn't on the FOB stuff. It was literally on, you know, a GPS entertainment system being the internet connection and then getting on the cars can network through that. But even before that, a lot of, you know, a lot of researchers have because car theft is one of the most obvious ways criminals could monetize this sort of attack. And they've been attacking cars a lot. So I will say that at least the rolling code system is supposed to be a security mechanism against, I mean, against replay attacks. Replay attacks were even trivially easier when FOBs first came out because they didn't have, you know, some of them were hard-coded and, and a basic replay attack could help. So, uh, you know, if if I'm just listening here, the fact that it has a rolling code system is generally a good thing because it is trying to protect against replay attacks. But I think you're going to tell me something about that window. And I, at first, before, you know, I, obviously I know the story already, so I know where it is. But even the pseudo-random number generator could, if I, if I were a researcher, it would be something else I would think of. Because if you can't perfect randomness, that sometimes is another avenue for attack. But my point being is at least the FOB system is trying to do more with the rolling code system. But but tell us what 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 happened that's new on this, Mark. Yeah. So last week, researchers at StarV Lab, yes, yeah, StarV Lab released a report and a POC of them bypassing that rolling Star code. StarV or Star Five? Is it Roman Ooh, numerals or I'm kidding? Five. I, don't know, I have man. no clue. I have no guy. I'm with you. I star V is what I would go with first. Yep. <laughs> uh, so this attack exploits a vulnerability where the car will accept replayed old codes and resynchronize its counter. So basically an attacker could sit there within range and capture several codes sent between the fob and then later replay that sequence uh, of valid codes to resync that pseudo random number generator. And then this lets them then reuse old codes that would normally be invalid. Um, basically, it lets them wind back time and then start fresh and replay resync codes that they had. Uh, so this uh, they tested this across 10 very popular Honda models dating back all the way to 2012 and found every single one of them were susceptible to the attack. And they've named this one Rolling Pone uh, as opposed to something Honda specific related because they actually feel like that this vulnerability probably exists in other cars as well. It's not just limited to Honda. Um, Honda has since responded to it by saying they've completely redesigned how the FOB and car interaction works for their newest models of cars. Uh, the new system adds a expiration to the old codes immediately, so you can't replay them, period, no matter what, which is basically how it should have been done from the get-go. But like this 
type of technology. It's not unique to cars. Like the same thing happens with garage door openers. Like I remember Absolutely. I used to be able to easily replay a garage door code to reopen it. And they added a rolling code system to make it somewhat more difficult, but not entirely unbreakable. Like I think you're right that this avenue of research is it is somewhat fresh to cars, but it's not exactly fresh yeah, in general. In fact, I think I was at a Black Hat where it was specifically uh, garage door openers too. And I, I, you can think of any sort of wireless key entry system or, or wireless turn something on system is, is potentially being vulnerable to this. Yeah. Uh, um, depending on how it's designed. I mean, so it's also really difficult to protect against because basically if you are able to patch it as a car manufacturer you have to have every single one of your customers come in and reprogram both their car the keys, and their key the fob, fob which is yeah yeah for i mean you could probably update the car expensive. firmware remotely no problem and that gets the car the update i i don't know maybe the firmware in the door is different but the key fob itself probably would have to be brought into the dealer but yeah yeah i, I will give them that at least they had some protection on it before this vulnerability and but yeah, it does show you the difficulty in in maybe you'd consider a car OT because it's not, you know, and like it's just something that you can't update as easily, at least the key itself. Yeah, for sure. But cool, and, cool, interesting research. Good that Honda's reacted and, and is fixing it. But uh, yeah, they did. Uh, also, Honda did point out that. You know, this does require specialized equipment. They labeled it as like very uh, sophisticated, you know, high tech hacker. That the reality is, is such BS now. Yeah. <laughs> all of the uh, all of the POCs I've seen are using just the HackRF one, which is like a hundred and eighty dollar little board. Yeah. That you can connect I, I would in your say laptop. five, ten years ago, they might have gotten away with it because maybe it was out of the hands of an unsophisticated attacker. But nowadays, there's a couple hundred dollars can get you this type of stuff. So it's not, it's 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 something that's easily learnable on the dark web, and you can just get the equipment pretty easily. Yep. And somewhat related news. So there's actually a talk at Black Hat this year that I can't actually tell if it's directly related to this or just like tangentially related so it's called a uh, rollback a new time agnostic replay attack against the automotive remote keyless entry system uh given by a few researchers at ncs group and a few college uh researchers as well too and uh, yeah they mentioned honda but they don't it's not immediately obvious based off the researchers and the person that originally disclosed rolling poem i'm assuming somewhat related though yeah yeah um, so if you're right, at Black we'll, Hat, we'll be able be to tell you at August, right? I mean, uh, I don't know how how podcasty will be, but it passed Black Hats. Uh, we're happy that we'll be able to attend live, so we'll probably have some Black Hat DefCon related content. So we might be able to summarize this for you in person. And I think maybe this is the we first have our time, whole team. Yeah. yeah, I think this is the first time I've been excited to go to Vegas in a very very long time. Especially going to Vegas in the middle of August. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, oh, it's hot. Uh, but either way, cool research. Like the reality is, there's not a lot that can be done about this uh, in the short term. The good news is, like, yes, it doesn't require specialized equipment, but it's still like I, it, you, I wouldn't say you have to be worried about someone unless you drive like a super nice car. Uh, I, I, I would say that the bigger mitigation to this is, by definition, anything that's a replay attack, the attacker has to be around you and capture it in the first place. So this isn't something a hacker can just walk up to your car when you're not there and get into it. Uh, 
they don't necessarily have to be right next to you to capture this and there might be antennas that can keep them far away but if you at the very least i, I guess if there's any practical tip maybe it's not <laughs> don't do what mark does and keep pressing your key fob over and over when you're really far away from your car and more specifically when you get close maybe look around and make sure there's no shady characters wearing a backpack with the funny antenna pointing <laughs> at you before I, I know that's kind of soft but but there there would have to be someone within your proximity when you used your real key to be able to gather what they need to get into your car later are you telling me i should stop doing the trick of holding the fob to my head to get that yeah extra see range if your, your bone conduction adds to <laughs> the distance or something Oh, whatever man. that trick is it's gonna be a, a hard habit to break um but i mean <laughs> hey i don't drive a honda and so hopefully i'm safe at least yeah um what so you got now? like uh, it's a maserat not not a maserati uh, <laughs> a bugatti <laughs> <laughs> you know unfortunately you don't pay me that much someday though <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so also last week microsoft's threat intelligence center published a blog post titled from cookie theft to business email compromise, attackers use AITM phishing sites as entry points for further financial fraud. And so this blog post detailed a large scale, and I mean actually really large scale, phishing campaign that used adversary in the middle, or AITM, phishing sites to steal passwords, uh, hijack users' sign-in sessions, and bypass multi-factor authentication. And I say large because the attack campaign has targeted more than 10,000 organizations since yeah. September 2021. It's a big number. Pretty nuts. Um, so attacker in the middle or adversary in the middle attacks, they work by basically the attacker deploying a proxy server between the victim and the website they're trying to visit. So think like normally if you're trying to log into office.com, you go to office.com. Enter your username and password, maybe accept a MFA prompt, and then you're in. In this situation, the attacker tricks the victim with a fish to visiting some other website. It's like not office.com. Uh, they disguise it to make it look like the legitimate website. Uh, common phishing techniques of copying branding over and everything. So the victim thinks they're there to log in. They enter in their credentials. And what really happens is the attacker's fake website takes whatever the user enters and creates its own session to the legitimate the website real one. and uh, relays those credentials on. A simple way to describe this is it's still really just a phishing site. The, the way this works is it's a phishing site, but it's a phishing site that's not just capturing the credentials and stuff, but it's also forwarding everything you do send to the legitimate one and, and acting as a man in the middle so that you get the replies from the, the legitimate one too. So it's just yep. a, a phishing site with redirect proxy capability. It's like a real-time phishing site because it can even yeah, yeah. You know, prompt you for MFA. And then in most of the cases, it was even giving the victim back the valid session cookie and redirecting them yeah. to the legitimate so website. So that they could get to, yeah. So to them, it looks like nothing. Like and it looks by the real. way, the, there's phishing sites that have been acting as a proxy before. The difference being is they may not, they might just steal credentials and move on in proxy and then send you to the real site after so you don't notice it was a phishing site. The, the difference you're going to get to is is how they, they're that session cookie you're talking about. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So using this stolen session. So basically, once you authenticate normally to a website, you get a what's called a session cookie, basically a little bit of data in your web browser that anytime you make a request to that site, like office.com says, here's Mark, I'm authenticated with this session ID. 
uh, verified by this hash or whatever. And so the website assumes that you are Mark then logged in. So if the attacker gains access to that, they can basically use these sites just as if they were you. And so what they were doing in these scenarios were a few different things. Um, so first they would go in and read the victim's email, look for anything potentially useful. They would then uh, attempt to like pr uh, do like By fraud way, before, attacks against them. Oh, before yep. you even get to what they do, realize that includes, I, I, you might've said it, but multi-factor authentication. We've, this is, none of this is a new attack. What I find most interesting about this is the, more the scale and the phishing, the, but, but we talked about how session cookies back when we are a way to bypass MFA once you've at least gotten the victim to log on with it. Meaning that when Mark goes to a site like this and log, well, hopefully Mark never would click that link because he's a smart dude and he uses DNS watch. <laughs> but if he did, you know, as as Mark might have mentioned, it forwards the MFA prompt too. So he would validly MFA. And the attacker doesn't even have to capture or know what the MFA is. But once you have that session cookie, at least until the session cookie expires, that's all you need to log in. To, as far as it's concerned, the MFA has already passed because Mark Mark entered it properly through this uh you know, what what do they call it again? Something in the middle site? AI attacker in the middle. In the middle. Pfft, another acronym. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thank you, Microsoft. Can't you just call it man in the middle? But you had to give a new name to a phishing site that has proxies. Anyways, the, the point is there's nothing new about this Hessian hijacking. In fact, we've talked about it's very common nowadays that there's cookie marketplaces where their whole point is to capture not just the not to capture credentials, but to somehow get a victim session cookie from them. And the only difference is in the past, it's because of malware. Like if I get malware on, or if Mark gets malware on my computer, uh, the malware can just sit there as a web proxy. And once I get back, it doesn't have to care about my credential or my MFA additional token. It just captures the, the session cookie directly from the endpoint itself because it has malware. This is slightly different being that it's a phishing site doing the session cookie hijacking at a large scale. The large scale is what interests me. But at the end of the day, all of this is a very standard and well-known attack. It's just very interesting that they were able to fish so many people with such a well-done phishing site proxy. But I, anyways, I just wanted to point out mostly the MFA part. There is, the, in this case, the MFA isn't broken. Everything worked. Mark set it up properly. The, the problem is if they can get that session cookie, you just have to remember that if it's web-based MFA, once someone has a session cookie, the MFA doesn't matter either. So once they had that access, though, uh, they would then use their victim's email inbox to then fish or commit fraud against other targets. Uh, so you could imagine if they went after like a, a MSP, they might send messages to their victims instructing them to complete their next payment to uh, this bank account, as an example. And they got clever at hiding their tracks for this. So every time they picked a new target, uh, they would set up an inbox rule that basically said, uh, for any messages received from this target, send to the archive and mark them as read. And so they would continue <laughs> using their access to go in and view those messages in the archive that the normal user would never think to go look at. They would then delete the messages once they've uh, cleaned up or once they've completed their fraud or whatever. 
And so to the victim, like they don't see any of this going on. And the attacker can sit there and have full on back and forth conversations over the course of a week with these victims. It's yeah, nuts. With, yeah, it's awesome. It would, awesome um, from a bad guy perspective. Yes. Very, very well done and smart attack. And so Microsoft's blog post gave a bunch of examples of what some of these proxy websites look like, uh, designed to look like official Office 365 logins in some cases. Uh, so the organization being fished may have set up like branding on their login form. So like the WatchGuard logo somewhere. And the fish's, uh, phishing website was smart enough to go grab that branding and mimic that on it as well. Um, so a very well-crafted attack by these attackers. Um, in the end, though, like how do you protect against this? So Microsoft recommends conditional access policies where basically the session cookie isn't enough in that case. It'll also check the IP address and the device information that's connecting to it. So that just stealing the session cookie, if you aren't also from that user's IP address, that'll raise alarm bells. Uh, they recommend anti-phishing solutions as well. Uh, so basically neutering that malicious proxy link. Corey mentioned there, uh, DNS watch, basically tools like that, where if you fall for the fish and click the link, instead of going to the bad website, you'll get redirected to a safe black hole, maybe get a bit of phishing training there in the moment. And then also just visibility. So monitoring for that suspicious or anomalous activity and then triggering an investigation when you see it. Still, pretty difficult style of attack to catch and identify if you aren't actively looking for it. And by the way, the the, the other than the middle one, uh, or I guess the visibility one, the conditional access one isn't up to you. Meaning the people that are getting fished, they're probably getting fished at Microsoft M365. The conditional access isn't something you can do because you're going to someone else's site that's using session cookies. It's something the industry has to do, meaning Microsoft you know, needs, and by the way, Microsoft does already do this. I'm just using them as an example. They're the ones that uh, for their web application, they can't treat a session cookie as enough. They need to do the, the additional context of IP address, device information, browser fingerprints. Most big sites do. You've probably seen, like if you go to Amazon, sometimes you'll get emails that I detected a new login from this computer on this date. Was it you? And maybe you had gone to your iPad and logged into something for the first time. So that's because they are paying attention to all this contextual information about where you're logging in. But I just want to make clear that first tip is if you're the victim of going to a phishing site pretending to be someone else, you, you can't, you have no control of how they're, what they're doing beyond the session cookies. So that's more industry advice that if you run a popular website and you don't want your website to be an attacker in the middle target, you should make sure you go beyond the session cookie to protect your visitors. Yep, 100%. Um, so moving on now to the last bit of this episode. Uh, it's been, man, it's been a hot minute since Q1 2022. Um, but despite Corey and Trevor's great uh, webinar on the topic, we wanted to go over a few of the key findings from our quarter one internet security report from the WatchGuard Threat Lab. Um, so... I guess, Corey, you want to do your quarterly spiel on why we do this uh, this report each quarter? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think in this report, I did something about data-driven decisions. Like if any job you're in right now, if you're a business person, I think we all realize that the best decisions are data-driven decisions. It's uh, If you're a doctor, 
uh, you could a patient can come in and say, "Hey, I feel this way. I feel this way. Look at me really quickly. What do you think I have?" If you make a diagnosis just based on what your patient says, it might not be the best diagnosis. A good doctor is going to take measurements. They're going to maybe get your blood pressure, your heart rate. They might even go back and look at your history in your medical file and look at all the heart rate and blood pressure trends from the past to see what's different. They take as much data as they can so that they can give you the best diagnosis. And I think you can apply that to any industry. And where I'm going is the same is true of security. Right. I mean, as we protect ourselves, none of us, you know, me and Mark are literally uh, the security office of WatchGuard now. We have to protect our company and there's so many good things we can do, but we don't have time to do all of them right away. So we have to prioritize our business, our decisions based on what has the best return and investment. And the whole point of the report is to give you a more real idea, a quantifiable idea of the real threats we see out there. And by having that data of knowing what the real threats are out there, that will help you make risk-based analysis for what's the best defense you can do. What is the best return and investment for the strategy or the next project you're going to do? You know, at the very least, we can tell you the likelihood of certain types of attacks based on what we are really seeing being exploited in the wild. And as you probably good well know, part of risk measurement is, is likelihood of the attack happening. So really the point is it is to take any quantifiable threat intelligence we get from our products, whether they be endpoint or network products, give you the trends we saw last quarter, and then based on where we see attackers going, sometimes there's big changes, sometimes it's more of the same. Uh, but in either case, seeing what they did in the past gives a better understanding of what they might start to do in the future. And hopefully you can adjust your defenses based on that. Data-driven yeah. decisions. Data-driven decisions. So in our report, we gather all this information from WatchGuard customers that have opted into sharing it with us. If you are a WatchGuard administrator, uh, on the Firebox, at least. Under the general settings, there's a little checkbox that says send device feedback to WatchGuard. Um, among uh, other telemetry information about just uh, feature and service usage on it, uh, anytime your device detects and blocks a threat, it will send a report back to us uh, with a little bit of anonymized information about that attack or malware payload that it blocked. And so we gather this from tens of thousands of fireboxes deployed around the world that have opted into sharing this and distill it down into this overall threat landscape picture across our customers. By the way, we'd love to gather it from hundreds of thousands. So if you haven't opted in on it, please do. Yes, exactly. Um, so for this, we're going to keep it short and relatively high level and just pull out the real good bits. If you haven't already read the report, you can get it at watchguard.com slash security report. You can also check out the webinar that Corey and Trevor did a few weeks back um, on, I think it's watchguard.com slash webinars uh, for our archive. I could be wrong. I bet if you Google it, you'll find it there as well too. Um, so quick, interesting highlights from it. First off, um, malware as a whole was down for the quarter about 10%, uh, which is interesting because it's been basically skyrocketing for the past couple of quarters or so. Yeah, we believe it's coming back to pre-pandemic levels, and uh, we feel like that's because maybe some people have started to return to the office, but it did drop Q over Q for the first time in two quarters. I will say, while this that's a Q over quarter over quarter stat, 
it's still up year over year. So if you look at the same quarter last year, it's it's still up quite a bit. So it's definitely still on the trend that is growing yearly, but it was surprising to see it go down after seeing such big rises the past two quarters before yep. this. And it does follow our pre-pandemic trends of having more malware in Q4, more network attacks in Q4, and then it kind of chilling out for a bit in Q1. Yeah. So yeah, Q4 used, Q4 used to be our, our biggest quarter we at the time we we kind of throw that to the, all the holiday sales and Christmas and Thanksgiving, uh, so you you are right that Q3 was never necessarily our most busy quarter for any threats. That really was Q4 for a while before the pandemic. And one of the big numbers that we track every quarter, and one you can also see on secplicity.org/threatlandscape, is what we call the zero-day malware number. And so this isn't a, a meter of zero-day exploits, which would be attacks against unpatched vulnerabilities. When we say zero-day malware, we're talking about malware that doesn't have a signature or gets past signature-based anti-malware services. And that could be because it's brand new, like it literally just doesn't have a signature, or much more commonly, it's actually old malware that attackers have run through some sort of evasion tool to make it get past these signature-based detections. There's tools called packers and cryptors that are available for free or for low fa uh, fees on underground and dark web marketplaces, uh, various ones you can get on GitHub, and just overall techniques that you can use to make it get past some of these signature-based tools. And when we talk about techniques, we'll get to this later. The latest thing is is living off the lander fileless attacks. And, and in these cases, it has less to do with the signature and more that there's just a new style of can you even call it malware when it's a pure living off a land attack? A, a new way of kind of gaining uh, a persistent control of a computer that may not even require the traditional files and registry entries that some old school uh, anti-malware products look for exclusively. Yep. And so for quarter one of 2022, that zero day malware number was 57.8% which means more than half of all malware we saw was evasive, meaning if you're just using signature-based detections, you're missing it. Uh, the reality is that's actually lower than we've seen in even just yeah, recent that's, quarters. I was going to say, you, you put the positive light that you, you uh, I think, smartly said, this is well over half. This is still a big number. So if you're not using malware detection that catches uh, malware using more proactive techniques, it's a problem. But at the same time to me and Mark, this number seems really low. <laughs> it's its kind of funny that half of over, almost 60% of malware seems low, but it's been in the 70s lately, as in 70%. And, which is funny because I remember like way back in the day, five years ago, four years ago, when we started doing this report, like it would hit like 40%. We're like, oh man, yeah. the sky is falling. And now <laughs> you really is... need APT blocker. <laughs> The reality is like 57, like half of all malware, that's low, very low. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I, this doesn't mean that you're safe if you're just using signature-based malware. It's still- Yeah, no, if, if you're hearing the message, I, I think it's proof that sophisticated evasion mal evasive malware, the bar for it is lowered. I, I think at one, it's becoming more common. Attackers are realizing they have to be smarter with evasion. Uh, ransomware authors have pushed this. I think nation state techniques have trickled down to criminals. But I also think more the underground and the as a service malware providers, whether it be ransom, they've lowered the bar. 
you, if you're a cyber criminal that may not be the technical person writing malware, even know what evasion techniques are, I think they've kind of uh, made a, a, a malicious underground that has really lowered the bar that makes it easy for any cyber criminal to get much more evasive with these attacks than they've been for in the past. And Mark said the takeaway, which is, you know, make sure you've you've evolved your anti-malware you know, programs or network controls since then. Make sure behavioral detection, machine learning, uh, contextual detection, contextual engines, whatever it be that, you know, I, we can tell you all our products that do it. You heard me say APD Blocker or WatchGuard EPDR has a great context engine. But whatever product you use, make sure it's not relying heavily on only signatures. Uh, so when it comes to individual threats or categories of threats, one of the big takeaways from the quarter was the resurgence of the Emotet botnet. Uh, so back in January of 2021, there was a international law enforcement takedown effort that actually made a really good dent on removing and disabling a lot of Emotet's infrastructure that allowed it to spread. And to the point where we were seeing news articles in like March and April of 2021 officially calling Emotet as a botnet dead. Uh, unfortunately, it's basically a zombie and it does not appear to be killable at this point because at three of the top 10 malware threats we saw by volume and one of the most widespread threats were Emotet or Emotet droppers, basically. Uh, now, most of these threats, they used some form of malicious office documents to spread, typically macro-based ones, but we saw them use DDE, I believe, and in one situation as well, too. But the reality is, like, you just a lot of these high profile, uh, widely used botnets are extremely difficult to kill. And while you can make a dent in them in the short term, they will come back. And let, let me share a little detail there. It's not like we don't like headlines when somebody said authorities made Emotet dead because we know it's not true. But to be fair, the authorities really took down a group and they took down an instance of Emotet. And they may even have taken down the instance of Emotet run by the original group that might have wrote it. But that same underground I talked about, I mean, the malware's Emotet is sold on the underground. I don't think Emotet source code is leaked, but, but Often botnet source code does get out there. And then even when you take down a group in one instance of their command and control structure, that doesn't mean another uh, group is not going to pick up the source code and do Emotet. The other thing is these are not the exact same variant of the Emotet that the authorities did take down. It's because Emotet was available on the underground and whether it's via source or whether it's just via the platform tools that they do sell, the, these are, you know, it, it's the Emotet family, but there's been adjustments by another group. So the reason botnets never die isn't because the authorities didn't really take something down or didn't really arrest something, someone. It's, it's because once they sell it on the underground, whether it's source or it's the backend framework with the binary, other groups can adjust it and, and make the the variant their own. And that's why we are we did a post as soon as this takedown happened, basically saying, hey, Emotet's probably not gone forever. Yay to the authorities for killing this one, uh, but it will probably come back. And you could probably say that of most botnets, uh, unless the group behind it is super private about their code, uh, which many are not because they want to monetize in all the ways they can by selling it too. Uh, Anytime you see a botnet takedown, expect a new variant of it to pop up with another group one day. 
So it's like we vaccinated ourselves for Emotet Delta variant and then Omicron it's, came and kicked ourselves it, in the butt. It's exactly. I mean, that's why we I think that's why the original Greybeards called them viruses and worms is because they're just new variants. And uh, I feel like I could write an article on how Emotet probably has pieces of Rbot and Zbot, which are the oldest like Zbot, one of the most common leaked source codes for a botnet that was the IRC botnet when it was first made, turned into a HTML botnet. It's uh, Citadel, which has a different name and a slightly new family. Really, half of its code is Zbot. So, you know, attackers don't reinvent the wheel. A lot of these botnet families have pieces of even older botnets in them too. So it's just it's just like variants of COVID or the flu or any other virus you would have. They keep on evolving. Yep. Uh, another key takeaway was from the network attack section, uh, where we identify attacks against network exposed services or network based clients. Uh, one of the big takeaways was log for shell was running quite rampant there. So first identified in I think the first week of December. Uh, by quarter one, 2022, it reached number eight on our top 10 network attacks by volume, which is actually uh, even more impressive than it sounds on the face because the bulk of our network attacks, especially the top 10, are typically like widely used scanners or widely used exploitation kits against old vulnerabilities. So for something only a few months old to pop up in there, at least in my opinion, it's pretty dang impressive. Yep. Uh, it makes sense because Log4Shell is an extremely easy to exploit vulnerability. It was simple to, to exploit. And I think the other half is it's ubiquitous. I mean, the second thing you might ask, okay, it's Q1 2022. Who cares that people are trying to exploit log for shell? They fixed it in December. The, the problem is log for shell. It's not just log for shell that you might've ran as a package yourself. It's log for shell is probably in 20 products that every network has that they don't know because the product is some vendor that they bought it from and they don't realize log for shell is a, a Java log parser running within the software or the hardware of this other product. So this is just a reminder. I mean, the takeaway here is obvious. If you haven't patched log for JS yet, you definitely should, but I think the additional complexity there that we talked about in the past podcast is you can't just look for whether or not you installed Log4j yourself. You have to really look at every software product you have that might have log parsing based on it. And, you know, so go to every vendor's, You hopefully you did this back in December when we recommended it, but it's, I think it's, this is going to be an exploit that's is, I, I think five years from now, Mark, we might still see this in the top 10 as one of those just mass scanned. And it's not because it's, it's still old and most people have patched it, but it's in so many little side products that people may not be immediately aware that it's part of this product because they get it from some other vendor uh, that it, it probably will stick around for a while. Yep. I'm Just with you on that. Yep. Yeah. Um, last key takeaway from uh, that data comes from the endpoint uh, where we actually get some more granular views on the types of attacks and types of malware that we're seeing. One of the things we track is the infection vector for the malware, basically how the malware first started on the system. And we bucketed into quite a few different categories there. And one of the categories that we've highlighted in past reports as being quite large, uh, but continues to grow is script-based attacks. So Corey, you mentioned earlier, the living off the land style of attacks. This is exactly that, where the attackers are abusing the tools that are built into our systems like PowerShell, NetSH, 
um, other scripting languages in order to basically fly in under the radar without ever dropping a malware payload or and anything by the on way, the system. I recommend we we talk a lot about the scripting because usually the 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 glue that ties living off the land attacks is the scripting itself because that's what allows them to launch. But it's also a lot of built-in Windows binaries like cert util. We talked about cert util in the Kaseya attack. So if you're interested, besides PowerShell, that binary itself, uh, LOLBAS, living off the land binary something or other. If you go to lolbas, I think it's .com or org, lolbas, they'll give you a list of over 100 binaries that are typically Windows binaries, but there's probably some for other operating systems too. That bad guys, they're, they're legitimate, perfectly good binaries that are supposed to be there on your system. And that's why security products might leave them alone. But the truth is bad guys can actually use them or, or I, sh I shouldn't say bad guys. I should say threat actors can use them to do bad things. Yep. So in quarter one of 2022, 88% of all malware detections on the endpoint originated with a script of some sort. And of those script-based threats, 99% of them used PowerShell. I think it was even 99.6. <laughs> so it was yeah. something like only 0.04% used anything besides. So obviously PowerShell is the the vector of choice right now for these. And it makes sense. It's a massively powerful tool that is enabled by default on all Windows installations. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's in the name, right? The whole reason Microsoft bought the company that made PowerShell because it's a powerful dang utility. But the point is, if you have the right privilege to crunch, like PowerShell in a domain admin's hands can literally do anything on a Windows network. So, uh, yeah. Takeaway here, by the way, is that contextual engine. This is why you can't rely on signature-based AV. You need products like Watch. I'll, I'll pitch WatchGuard EPDR, but uh, you know, if you want other products, they might do it too. But obviously, we can't just assume PowerShell is bad because IT people, I use it all the time. Uh, but what what our our product basically does is when PowerShell is spawned, we start paying attention to context. Same with when the command line is spawned. Same with with other common Windows processes that can be used for bad. And we pay attention to common you know behaviors or commands, or we have a bunch of contextual rules. Like if you see PowerShell run with certain parameters that are trying to hide it from a user and trying to evade group policy, which there is well known parameters to do that. We, we can see things like that to make sure we say, oh, wait a second, this PowerShell execution, we're going to stop it. So there are yeah, things so you can do. Speaking of things you can do, like let's end by going over our three main defensive tips for the overall report. And the first one uh, was based around the massive growth of ransomware that we didn't highlight in this kind of overview. But in the report, we saw a pretty substantial increase in ransomware volume. Uh, By the way, so it was a big deal for the same reason as the malware, but opposite. We've seen ransomware declining based on endpoint data for many quarters. So this was a big increase, which, you know, total opposite of what we've seen the past few quarters. And so our tip was basically make sure that you've got not just good backups, but that you've tested your recovery procedures as well, too. Like a backup is only as good as your ability to recover from it sometime in the future. Um, also, make sure that you're using multi-factor authentication because more often than not, attackers are using compromised credentials in these attacks to deploy ransomware. And then just have good layers of proactive anti-malware. So we mentioned that 
only half of malware detections we saw evaded signature-based detections. But if you get two ransomware payloads, that means that one half of that one of them is going to come in and successfully execute if you're not using proactive anti-malware detections. And by the way, that, those aren't the only ransomware. I think we start this tip by mentioning ransomware is one of those attacks that is very multi-vectored. There's so many ways it comes in that it, it really is a layered security. Uh, I mean, you better have a lot of layers of security, but those three specific tips we think are the biggest return in investment for ransomware. 100%. Uh, second tip was harden your corporate Microsoft Office security settings. Corey, you want to take that one? Yeah, so basically, I think we talked before how Emotet often comes as malicious. It starts with a malicious office documents to spread. Some things we didn't highlight, but be beyond the Emotet, uh, there's a couple of word vulnerabilities that keep on showing up in both our top malware and even sometimes our top IPS uh, attacks. So office documents, malicious booby-trapped office documents are a very common way to spread malware and attacks nowadays. Uh, uh, by the way, while there's sometimes vulnerabilities that you need to patch, I would say a big majority of Office document malware or, or malicious Office documents don't necessarily rely on a vulnerability. They do tricks in, in whether it be macro things or, or active content to kind of get you redirected to a, a malicious page. And Microsoft has lots of features that help you basically control whether or not macros are going to run and how they're going to run. And the same for scripting and other active content. By the way, the one disappointment, since we released the report, Microsoft has recently said it's rolling back its automatic default of blocking macros, but the features are still there. So long story short, you don't. a lot of companies can't just disable macros because maybe your finance team uses them, but the amount of granular features they have are pretty deep. For instance, I can... I can say if it's an internet-based document, macros are def disabled, but if it's internal, it's not. I can say if it's this group of users, macros are disabled, but otherwise this finance users can use them. Or I could even go, I only will allow signed macros to run so that if you do use macros, you can disable all of them unless they're your corporate ones, which of course you then have to set up so that they're signed properly. But the point is Microsoft has a ton of very deep office security settings. So the main takeaway is, I, is, it's hard, I don't remember the link, but if you check out the report, I share a link to both Microsoft's office hardening tips, as well as a government agency. I think it was NCSC's Microsoft hardening tips. And there you can find a wealth of information of different group policy, uh, things you can set up, or Microsoft 365 things you can set up, depending on which version of Office you use, that can really limit you know, what can run. So besides not just worrying about your users saying enable editing or enable mac macros, you can have deeper security there. Yep. And the last tip from the report I want to highlight is toughen up your PowerShell security, which we really touched on after that 99% of script-based threats. Uh, it basically boils down to like, you already hit on those contextual engine rules, but similar to macros, you can limit the usage of PowerShell across your organization. Like it totally makes sense for your IT team to potentially have access to this, maybe some of your other power users. Uh, but like you can limit normal employee usage of PowerShell and limit the ability for some of these living off the land attacks to run them. 
And there's other hardening beyond that too, like having beyond just saying who can run PowerShell, there's some additional thing, types of uh, PowerShell hardening you can do. Again, in the report, we point to two different guides that will help you find the right balance of limiting PowerShell, whether it's limiting some users from running it at all or disabling some capabilities, or, or maybe you can, I think you can even get down to the, the level of only approved PowerShell scripts. So uh, just check out those hardening uh, guides for both Microsoft Office and for PowerShell. Yep, and this was a super quick review of our report. If you haven't already read it by now, it's watchguard.com slash security report. This one was a, a pretty good one with a lot of interesting information in it. I uh, definitely recommend checking it out if you haven't already. And if you're like Corey and you can't be bothered to read a 40-something page report, there is an executive summary as well with all of the important bits <laughs> pulled out of it. Says the guy when I have to read the report literally six times by the time we've done all our review processes. Each section read independently by both you and me, and then the final one read like three times. I wish I could be the that. executive that only uh, read the executive summary. If That's you're the like part Corey I and I, and you're sick of reading reports. <laughs> yes, we, we like our report, but by the time it's come out, we've read our own 48-page report five times probably read it as much as I've read Lord of the Rings each individual one every time but still definitely check it out it's always good information um, and yeah I mean with that and chat with you guys next week hey everyone thanks again for listening as always if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to rate review and subscribe if you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.